Hello and welcome to episode 256 of Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're going method and getting into character for our review of Todd Haynes's psychodramedy, May, December. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm good. I just got back from the pet store where I went into the back store room and too soon, did, my, too soon. did my podcasting voice to get ready for the podcast <laughs> after I watched the movie. I sat on the stair. I did everything, man. I was, I'm ready. I came in very warmed up for this discussion of, of May, December. I mean, jokes aside. I did literally just finish watching the movie. So I really don't like these days coming in that hot talking about a movie. But this is these are the cards that I've been dealt today. This is what we're going to get. We're going to get some very fresh takes that in a week's time when we record our next episode on Boy in the Hair and I'll reserve a 10 minute section to amend any any bad takes that I had on this podcast. But we'll carve. We'll make sure and carve that out for you. Yeah. Maybe we'll get Jay to watch May December in the meantime, and he can comment as well. I would be interested to hear his thoughts. Yeah, I think especially with a movie like this, it's hard because there's a lot of layers to what, sure. what the movie has on its mind. I think, um, and you well, know, I watched it yesterday, and yeah. I, I certainly have been thinking about it a lot since then, and probably will continue to be thinking about it. Uh, and I even think, you know, that a rewatch is probably. I'm not going to say essential necessarily, but like, I, I feel like it could be pretty revelatory for a movie like this, knowing yeah. where it's going, rewatching, you know, sort of the, the subtleties and what people are doing, maybe. Yeah, I think that could be interesting as well. I look, Jay has started to call himself a bit of a cinephile now, as he mm -hmm. informed me when he texted me about wanting to see the film American Fiction in the early access screening, in which we went, we did go and see that movie together. So I might text him and be like, bro, if you're a cinephile, you know, front up, man. Let's go. Watch Check out the new Haynes. Watch the, watch the new Haynes flick. Um, <laughs> but look, Haynes I resubscribed to Netflix for this thing, so I've been thinking about what else I'm going to watch for the next month before I inevitably cancel my subscription. And I'm like, Glass Onion. That's what I'm going to watch. I'm going to rewatch Glass <laughs> Onion. <laughs> you could watch one of their, you know, wholesome Christmas movies that they have that I think are their their hallmark ripoffs. Basically, I think. You know, Peacock but, has yeah. one of our own Hallmark ripoffs. We have a Melissa McCarthy Christmas rom com called Genie that's actually been quite popular, which is kind of hilarious. It's like it was like charting in Nielsen last week, which was like I mean, crazy to me. I'm not it's surprised. Crazy. People love watching these, you know, it's cozy true. low stakes movies. At yeah, Christmas. it's cottage core, you know, man. Yeah, I won't condemn them for that. Everybody has their thing. But with that, Scott. Let's get into it. As mentioned, our film today is May-December, the latest feature from acclaimed indie auteur Todd Haynes. May-December is set in 2015 in Savannah, Georgia, where actress Elizabeth Berry, played by Natalie Portman, arrives to research her new role in an upcoming independent film. Elizabeth has been cast as Gracie Atherton Yu, a 50-something Savannah woman who over 20 years earlier became the subject of a massive tabloid scandal when she, at age 36, was caught having sex with a 13-year-old boy named Joe Yu, a schoolmate of her son Georgie. After serving a prison sentence in which she gave birth to Joe's child, Gracie married Joe and the couple have lived in Savannah with their three children ever since. Tasked with trying to embody the mercurial figure of Gracie, Elizabeth begins to shadow both Gracie, played by Julianne Moore, and the older Joe, played by Charles Melton, as she seeks deeper into the lives of the unconventional family. 
Haynes and screenwriter began to sink deeper too into the big meaty ideas about the ethics of performance and the ways that people obscure truths that are painful to them. Scott, I hesitate to say any more because I do think May December is best approached fairly cold. Did you find that Haynes successfully walks a tonal high wire with this thought-provoking performance piece, or do all of its ideas fail to coalesce into something that matches the weight of its subject matter? Yeah, I think Todd Haynes trying to trying to maybe pull off something of a of a Todd Fields last year, maybe with this high wire act. Uh, oh yes, I don't mean. I honestly really don't feel like there are, there are that many comparisons between the two movies but obviously the, with the director named Todd and a sort of interior piece around uh, a woman who may have a particular psychosis I don't know if that's that, that's maybe too strong of a word but a particular personality I think is something is something interesting to to think about but uh, jokes aside there I think that he certainly does construct quite a dramatic high wire act here as I mentioned at the beginning of the pod, I literally just finished watching this movie. So I'm I'm going to uh, sheepishly reserve judgment, at least until the end of the pod, about whether I think that he he pulled off this high wire act. But what I will say is that I came into this film sort of because it's advertised that way, although less so recently as the film has garnered more attention and award shows, frankly, have started to dole out their uh, awards, but I really came into this movie, especially you know, especially leading into the season after it debuted at Cannes and, and at the New York Film Festival, <clears throat> thinking that this was really a two-hander between Julianne Moore and uh, Natalie Portman. But when you watch the movie, y- you know it might be a two-hander between Natalie Portman and Charles Melton, or it, arguably a three-hander between the th- you know all three of those those people. But it, you know, coming into the film, I didn't really know what it was about. I mean, I'd read like the, you know, the one sentence primer of like scandalous relationship sort of dredged up again when actress studies the subject of her new movie and whatnot. And I was thinking this was going to be not sort of Black Swan or something like Natalie Portman's done in the past, like where it's this real psychological thriller type thing, but something more akin to that and less than maybe what we actually got which is this much more, you know, if it's the right way to describe it, grounded piece, um, like psychological study, more than it is like a thriller. Although it does have some noir. Char- like thriller characteristics. Yeah, noir is a good way to put it. Characteristics yes. that I'm not going to say feel out of place, but were choices, uh, very deliberate choices in the narrative of the, of the film. And, and sometimes it feels, or it felt, I should say at times, a little bit hammy in some respects, but that also might be some of the psychology of it, it. both of the women in this movie, for sure. Natalie Portman's Elizabeth, who's this famous actress and Julianne Moore, who plays the subject that the, that Natalie Portman's new film is about. That is her name is Gracie, as you mentioned. And both women have a bit of the flair for the dramatic. I think it's, to, I think it's fair to say. And it really rattles the cage a bit, I would say. And when you have these two women dueling in their dramatic ways, sort of in the noir vein, it kind of feels a little bit like a game between the two of them. 
And the real loser is Charles Melton's character, Joe. And I think that is ultimately what feels like the takeaway of the film to me is that when you have this, when you have this, the, this shining bright light on this problematic character like Gracie, the victims are everyone around them, not them. And that might be a very obvious thing to say when you sort of take 10 steps back and look at it holistically. But when you're watching the movie, it's kind of, I think it's kind of easy to forget that the subjects of, of the film are in many ways, the perpetrators of all the bad acts in the film. I think when you're just really engrossed in it in the moment, it's very easy to lose track of that. And then you have these, these moments that sort of these like climactic moments where you recognize that, I mean, emotionally is Joe younger than his children. That's like the, I mean, he's like, like he's so emotionally stunted by yeah. the things that happened to him when he was 13 years old and that he's been sort of trapped in a case in for the, it can't even say his entire adult life because it was part of his childhood as well that he is just stuck. Like he's wearing the same clothes that you'd expect like a 12 year old from the nineties to be wearing. Like he's wearing like the, what I think now would be called dad jeans and like baggy polo shirts. Like these are clothes just that you're sitting on the couch, sitting on the couch, texting his, for his butterflies, yeah. caring for it. Yeah. And I mean, there's obviously like a huge metaphor in the butterflies yeah, and everything very on the nose. But yeah, but I, I just think that, there's a part of that that becomes really insidious almost, right? Like there's this really toxic thing that's happening. And frankly, I think both women are a part of that in this film. And the person who receives all that toxicity is of course, Joe. And does Todd Haynes pull that off effectively? I think so. But when you say, when you talk about a rewatch being very revelatory, I'd be interesting. I wonder if I could honestly see on a rewatch it going both directions where it feels almost too on the nose or too tele or not subtle enough, or it could unlock a lot more that, you know, I just completely missed the first time around, not necessarily because there's so much to unpack, but because there are so many little pieces moving or not that it's like so hard to read the film. Cause I, I don't think, I guess at least I personally didn't feel like there was like a ton of, big twists in the in the plot so to speak like you feel a lot of that i think you feel a lot of what's happening coming at certain points in the film it's not trying to hide the eight ball or anything like that but there are certainly bits and crumbs and a lot of psychology to unpack in the film of both gracie and maybe even more subtly elizabeth i think if, if you think about more subtle characters to maybe unpack what they're trying to to do with in the film that there's a lot going on. It's a film I was totally engrossed in for the 110 odd minutes. I watched the film and yeah, it's a it's a pretty hard recommend for fans of adult dramas in uh, of the year. There's not that we're really um you know, shorten shorten supply in that department each year, but it definitely is a very high quality film that I don't know everyone, if everyone will necessarily enjoy the subject matter because I think it's not, at times it can be very uncomfortable. I mean, Grace, what, what Gracie did is horrific, in my opinion. But it's interesting to unpack the ripple effects of those things over 20 to 25 years since the events that happened and see how they've manifested 
over the years and and maybe try to understand why something like that a could happen but b could then persist not that it's common but this was based on you know loosely based on real life mm-hmm. a real life woman in california who um had sex with her 12 year old student and gave birth to their child in prison and then eventually married him when she was released from prison so you know it maybe it's a unique incident but it's still something that happened and still something to think about yeah i mean i've had a day to ruminate on it now which is you know still not that much relatively speaking but um there's a lot to to toss over i i think you're right to invoke the name of tar I, i did come to mind for me too in in multiple ways i think you know, we can obviously get into it, but I think the last scene of both movies is, you know, does have some similarities in, in a way. We, we can we can talk about it, but I did think oh, about it. Was it getting scene. real for you? Is that what you're saying? Tar. <laughs> well, not not necessarily that part of it, but just sort of the ridiculousness of where the movies kind of choose to end up, but in in, in their own way. But we can talk about that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I thought this movie was pretty um, spectacular, Scott. Uh, I think. Uh, I was really on board with, again, the tonal high wire act because, you know, it is this psychological drama. Um, and But it's also, you know, a, a black comedy in a way. And there are all these sort of um, campy moments that Todd Haynes is really milking them for, for what they are. And the, there's this musical score, which was you know, borrowed from another source, have, you know, heavily piano um, driven that just kind of serves to uh, soap things up a little bit uh, in various moments. And I think that's all very purposeful, but it's also, you know, leads to humorous results when you have like dramatic piano chords playing as Julianne Moore opens the refrigerator and says, I think we, you know, I think I'm not sure if we have enough hot dogs. And then of course we cut to the next scene and, and there's a ton of hot dogs. Um, so it's, it's kind of, again, that, that little subtle detail tells you a lot about the character, I think, and um, the way that she um, is trying to uh, sort of justify maybe her past actions by turning everything else into uh, a tragedy the same size as, or, or if not bigger than what she herself, you know, did in the past. But um, there's just a lot going on um, psychologically, again. Um, and he's talking about the, the, I, I called it the ethics of performance, I think in my, um, script, I I think, you know, that is, that is definitely on the movie's mind and particularly the Natalie Portman character. And, you know, what is the, the value in telling stories like this in, in an artistic medium, right? Um, is there value in it? Um, Natalie Portman's character is constantly talking about trying to find the truth, right? But in trying to find the truth in this sort of fictional medium, so to speak, are we actually getting further away from what the truth actually is? And, you know, again, the the truth, the, the clearest truth being here in this movie, I think what you say, Scott, that, that Joe is the victim in all of this, right? And that he has been really, really harmed by trying to sort of obscure the truth in their own way, right? And that's why I think it's interesting, you know, that the movie is sort of laid out as this 
mystery noir almost in the beginning um, where Natalie Portman is going around and interviewing all these people sort of uh, about what happened. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, all you really need is is one sentence telling you what happened, right? And, you know, you, you can hear more details about it, but it doesn't really change the, the end outcome of what happened and the fact that that was wrong. And Natalie Portman is trying to, you know, delve deeper into this and, and like, you know, try to understand this person, um, which, you know, I guess she considers to be the job of, of her as an actress. But at the end of the day, there's not much more to it than how it appears on the surface, I think, is what, you know, we as the audience ultimately learn, but maybe Natalie Portman as the, the actress never quite learns and, you know, really doesn't stop in her quest. Um, you know, throughout this entire movie to try and unlock some truth that maybe really is not as complicated as she would want it to be for the role that she's trying to to play. Um, but it, it may, maybe it, it's less even that, though, and more just what is the point? I think the film is trying to say maybe there are things that are deeper, but does it really matter to go deeper when you have so much harm done right in front of you? Yeah. I don't know if that's quite the right read, but I kind that's kind of what we're yeah. sitting with on a reaction right now. And, and you know, what does it mean to go deeper? Again, there's this scene where Natalie Portman is is at a uh, the school and she's answering questions for you know the students and, and they're asking her about playing, you know, somebody who maybe they think is a bad person and she, you know, is kind of talking about oh living in you know the moral gray area and everything. Well, what is the moral gray area here? Like it almost comes off as like very tone deaf the way she's talking about it because there's not really any moral gray area to what Julianne Moore did, right? Um, and I think yeah. maybe Todd Haynes is trying to make a point there about trying to introduce ambiguity in a situation where maybe there isn't any ambiguity, right? Maybe the the truth is just as clear as as day as clear as we see it uh, but that's just i think one of the ideas that's going on in the movie um where was this conversation in licorice pizza scott this is this is the justice <laughs> that i want for that no one was talking about this with licorice pizza is it that different i mean that, that it is an interesting conversation to have again i don't think that that movie necessarily romanticizes it to the extent that um you know maybe others do um mm -hmm. but i do have my thoughts on that we definitely don't need to relitigate now that I now Anyway, uh, that's just one of the things we can talk about with this movie, Scott. I think there's sure. so much else going on. I think, you know, first and foremost, the performances are amazing by the three actors that we've we've singled out here. I think there's so many choices that they're making here um, with, with everything they are doing, and all of them work, right? Uh, yes, like Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman are just going for it, right? They are really, you know, eating the scenery, but that's saying something about their character right and you know they it's again it comes back to me about this idea of what is the truth and the fact that um they are trying to over dramatize a lot of things particularly julianne moore's character to sort of you know hide the the reality of and and the severity of what she has done to her husband right and so it's much easier to think, oh, these people canceled their orders with us or, oh, we don't have enough hot dogs or whatever. And to blow that out of proportion into some, you know, huge tragedy 
um, so that you can kind of justify what's happened in the past. Um, that's, you know, that, that's just, that's kind of what's going on with the Julianne Moore character. And then with the Natalie Portman character, you know, again, she's trying to achieve some sort of level of performance um, that, uh, you know, she, she's trying to win her Oscar. She, she's she sees as truth. being art, art. Yeah, exactly. She sees the art being the, the be all and end all here, but it's, you know, it's fascinating to watch this psychological uh, battle unfold between all of the the characters and, and the the performers. And at the end of the day, I don't know if we'll see another movie this year that um, that that you know leaves us with as much to chew on as this movie does, or or you know is as comes as close to Tar did in that department. It is the movie that I think of the most, even though there's a lot of differences. Well, um, and you, you haven't watched yet one of the big biopics that leaves you thinking a lot about. That is true. The subject that is true. Matter. I do. I do want to get to that, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I was thinking about Tarn. That's obviously high praise, knowing what we think about that movie. So sure. Um, yeah, I have I have nothing but the utmost praise for this film. Moving on, Scott. You know, I think this movie is so much about the performances and yeah. um, is commenting on the act of performance. You know, in and of itself, and so I think the actors performances are so key to what the movie is trying to do. I want to ask you first about the two actresses, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman, two Academy Award winning actresses, you know, real powerhouses, um, real A-listers, you would have to say. Um, And they are given some meaty roles here. um, And Todd Haynes is letting them cook in a lot of scenes in this movie. What did you think about their, their performances, their sort of dueling performances here? Yeah, I found I mean, sort of like I was teasing almost in in my early thoughts, I found the film is really so much and spends so much time trying to examine the psychology of these two women. Obviously, the it's very clear one side of that coin, what that means, like what is the psychology of this woman who was when she was 36, slept with a 13 year old and then chose to try to live the rest of her life with him too. like what? What is that? I mean, that is what Nat like that psychology is what Natalie Portman is also there for. She's trying to unpack that. She's trying to understand it. And her character, Elizabeth, on the other hand, sort of almost not reaching self-parody, but reaching self-examination through the process of going through this. You start to unpack, well, why is she interested in in doing this either? What's making her tick? What is she trying to do? Is what she's doing good? Is it bad? Does it matter? And I think that both of these women do such a good job, both through externalization, through conversation, but also in sort of the interiority, because there's several, several key scenes, I think, in this film that are really just these women alone on the screen working through stuff. I think that's especially true of Natalie Portman, who I think I might edge slightly over Julianne Moore's performance, just because I think there's... There, there's something strange about the Julianne Moore performance that I, I just can't quite put my finger on that m- may have allowed Natalie Portman to really take take it for me. But what I will say that I find maybe I'm just sort of over it. Maybe I'm having my like Jay and the prestige moment with Christian Bale and what he said about that. But I feel like at times Natalie Portman is like trying to do a Julianne Moore. Like she's like trying to even like sound like sound and act like Julianne Moore at times in this film. And I'm like, Am I just am I just reading this onto this film or is she well, actually trying to do that? 
No, she's absolutely trying to do it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, so first of all, okay. Julianne Moore is doing a, a voice. Uh, Julianne Moore does not sure. sound like Julianne Moore in this movie. She has a lisp that I think is, again, a choice that she has made for this character that I apparently did. the real life person had a lisp okay. that the film is based on, but it certainly was a choice. And when I first, when I first heard it, I was like, man, this is a weird, this is a weird choice, what this is. But well, I think it works. You know, I think it, it, it brings this sort of like innocence and naivety to like her character and, and sort of this, well, this, this tension of, does she actually, understand even that what she did was wrong is she so like you know naive childlike whatever you want to say to where she doesn't quite understand that she has you know she manipulated him and has she really just deluded herself into believing oh this is this is just love right and we just had to overcome certain things uh but at the end of the day we did because we're in love or is she just pulling all the strings um because we see both sides of it, right? We see that she can switch in the blink of an eye to being this much more savage sort of character, particularly in some of the scenes with the kids, we see that. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's a small, subtle thing, but the lisp um, is something that I think that the tension can really sit in that little, uh, you know, vocal tick that she she does and yes to go back to your point natalie portman when she has this one sort of amazing scene where she is practicing performing a letter that a love letter that gracie wrote sure. to uh joe and i mean she Did she is do the voice better full. than julianne more <laughs> she is doing the voice right in this in this scene because she is trying to embody we, we were all everybody. rebecca ferguson from dune saying use the voice yeah, exactly. But um, so so yes, I think she's absolutely trying to do that, and I think she's pulling it off pretty brilliantly. Honestly, I mean that scene. Is, but but is I nice actually, nice. I'm not even referring to the big moments though. When she's when she is clearly trying to perform and act like the the character of Gracie, I'm talking about in like little mannerisms when she's with Gracie and when and studying Gracie. Yeah. Like there, there's the obvious stuff where like the way she's like crossing her hands on her lap or the way that she's like her posture or whatever it might be. Those are like the obvious physical things that she's trying to emulate. But then like the cadence, I felt like the cadence of her speech was sometimes changing to try to match, even though it wasn't the voice necessarily that you're talking about in those, in that big <clears throat> mirror scene, basically where she's doing the reciting, performing the letter. But there was something about the performance there that I, I found really impressive just from uh, almost sort of like a, I almost think of it almost more as like play acting. Like this, this very theatrical element of like you are sitting across from a person in a theater and you are you are performing with them. And I know that's not I mean, not that that's that different than normal acting or that that's not what they were trying to do in this film. But I just I was sort of captivated by that in the Natalie Portman performance. And I think that. When you say that that Todd Haynes let them cook, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. At the same time, to go over to the other side of the coin and talk about gracie a little bit more like i found the sort of the the narrative of her character uh, maybe unsurprisingly to be the most compelling part of uh the two women's performances so like even I, though i might prefer the acting of natalie portman i think i prefer the characterization of gracie and there's just so many not so many I, there's not so many but there there are so there are some key scenes where i just find the way that this character is written and the way that 
is it Todd Haynes? He doesn't. Does he? Did he write this movie? No. Uh, this Sammy. Is Sammy Birch. Sammy Birch. Yeah. yeah, Sammy Birch. The way that this that the character of Gracie is, is sort of almost almost like willfully trying to you know dominate a situation and impose her will on the people around her. You see this maybe most with with someone like Joe, who's obviously very uh, you know very subservient in his in in the relationship. He's very much trying to always cater to the needs of gracie he's almost sort of at her beck and call like he doesn't really have or doesn't seem to have much of a life of his own outside of his job as i assume some sort of nurse tech at the hospital is what it seems like and i found that her ability and her characterization to deflect all you you were mentioning it earlier like her ability to deflect almost like personal attacks at her character or evaluation of her behavior in the past, the way that she's able to deflect that away and sometimes even return it back to Joe or, or to, or to Elizabeth, I found it very effective. And and sometimes I think it maybe grows a little bit too on the nose. Like at the end when she's there at graduation and she like walks up to Elizabeth and she's like, I'm secure. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand what you're trying to do here. So there's like sometimes where, and maybe the on the noseness is the point. Like this person just like she feels like she's losing, so she like has to try one more time to pound home like how how normal she is, how like I am good, you know, no one is as normal as me kind of vibe. Where on these other scenes, you see her sort of just completely breaking down. You have Joe talking about how she's the opposite of secure. She's someone who would completely fall apart if he were to leave her. And who's to say really what the truth is there, but we certainly know that neither end of that spectrum is probably where reality lies that she's, you know, she probably would be able like Elizabeth is saying to move on, on with her life. I mean, she decided to completely wrecking ball her first life in exchange for some weird, new, exciting life. And I think the notion that she'd be incapable of replicating that is is foolish. But at the but same I, time, I, she clearly has these deep insecurities that leaves her crying randomly in her bedroom over the isolation that she feels at the same time. So it is it is this high wire. I think the way you do, I mean, we keep sort of going back to that idea of this being a high wire act, I think is is true. And I think that, again, I, I sort of really do feel that this character is sort of under slash overestimated by both parties. Like she's probably more capable of living her life than Joe gives her credit for and probably less capable of moving on than Natalie, than Elizabeth sort of says. And I think that is, that is the nuance and that is the complexity of the character, right? That is what makes her compelling. It's not that she's one thing or the other. It's that she is, like all of us somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I mean, I do think there is something to be said for, you know, if, if this, if, if Joe leaves the relationship, you know, does that shatter the illusion that, you know, this was true love right between them. And with that illusion having been shattered, is she now just left with the reality of the situation, which is that she, you know, manipulated this, 
13 year old kid into this relationship and you know ended up ruining his life um which maybe maybe not that maybe she couldn't bear to live with yeah i mean maybe maybe not again i that, think some that, parts yeah. of that are probably true but i don't know that she would have to face the notion that he's ruined she's like even if that were true right i don't think she'd even in that situation i don't know if she'd face that right ruining his life i think that she'd have a really hard time seeing that from her yeah, yeah. from her that's probably true tower her her age yeah. tower her 20 23 year age <laughs> different tower or whatever <laughs> yeah well, speaking of the age difference, I think it's worth talking about Charles Melton as well, of course, who plays Joe. Yeah. And, um, you know, you've already mentioned that you just don't believe him as a dad, which is obviously what oh, meant yeah. to, I mean, to that's, think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's just great casting in that regard because, you know, he he looks exactly how old he's supposed to be, if not younger. I mean, like he's supposed to be in his 30s, I guess, in the movie, but he doesn't even quite look. I think he's 32. 30 um and yeah life. he's you know he's he's stunted as you as you say um mm -hmm. and really just sort of barely has any agency in his own life it seems and and has maybe never had any agency in his own life since the moment that he you know got into this uh this situation with with gracie um a lot of people are talking about this performance as being the standout in this film a lot of people are talking about this as a being a big Oscar contender Scott do you do you see where they're coming from people aren't just talking about it I mean he's winning awards already right he's what did he win at the who won at the Gotham Awards it wasn't him right I think it was, was him, it him yeah it was him I mean he won at the Gotham Awards he won at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards which yeah. we're going to talk about in the second half of the show so not only is he garnering buzz but he's starting to bring home the awards as well and certainly be very high up in the consideration and the conversation for best supporting actor which I mean, it's it's a very tough category this year, in my opinion. There's a lot of really strong supporting actor roles, and he certainly puts his hat in the ring. I would say I find the performance really compelling. I mean, I haven't seen him really. I mean, I guess I saw him in Bad Boys for Life because he was in that movie, and I did see that movie. So I guess I did see him. I have seen him in something before. You know, I haven't watched Riverdale. I didn't see I didn't watch The Sun is also a star. But when you look at this guy, what you see is certainly not what you get when you turn on May December. He's this very meek, almost. Yeah, like uh, he almost seems like this person who. I mean, intellectually stunted, I mean, like maybe is the best way to describe it. Like he looks like someone who's frozen as a emotionally as a child in this film right like he's very passive he is submissive to his much older wife he does not have a very it doesn't seem like he has a very active role in parenting frankly and part of that is because his wife is the age of his dad probably like it's they're probably not that far off yeah. in terms of age because Julianne Moore is like because Gracie's son was his friend in school and that's one of those elements where you talk about a real I don't want to say transformation because it's not like he's doing some sort of physical transformation but the way that he's holding himself the way that he that this care that he carries himself around this film as this sort of slouched sort of meek looking you know 30 something who's wearing 
again, I said this earlier, but sort of clothes that uh, just feel like a snapshot, just like his emotional age and his emotional in intelligence of when he was in seventh grade in in school and when he was taken advantage of and um, by by Gracie and exploited by Gracie. And and I found it really impressive how he was able to go through the physical the physical side of this performance in a way that felt you know, totally believable. And I find, I almost find that to be the most remarkable part of the performance. There's obviously also the, the sort of, uh, you know, juvenile candor that he brings to like so many, like this guy doesn't even know how to have a deep conversation about things. Like he tries to have this conversation for the first time mm -hmm. at the end of the movie. And you see immediately why he's never had that conversation before and why he avoids that conversation at all costs like the the extent of his sort of emotional conversations is like trying to console his you know temperamental wife when she becomes upset and as we see multiple times in this movie starts sort of crying about whatever might be happening that doesn't really seem like that big of a Trivial deal but she's clearly upset by it and that's his that is that is the that is the extent of the kinds of emotional conversations he is capable of having because that's all that he's been able to do since he was 13. And I think that that he, the, the outstanding part of the performance is being able to channel that kind of energy in someone who, uh, to use the word of the year, seems like in real life, he probably has a lot of riz. Yeah, well, Netflix, I mean, Netflix, just the, you know, worst company to market this movie because they're posting all kinds of thirst, thirst traps, traps of Charles yeah, yeah. Melton on yeah. Instagram, like as if that is not like the complete opposite of the point of the movie, which but. is hilarious. Cause he has like a dad bod in this movie, which is, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, funny. he does. He definitely yeah. does. Um, but there's also another scene where he's on the roof with his son and yeah. his son is, I, I, I think it's a joint. I don't know exactly. He's smoking is, something. Yeah. yeah. He's smoking um, and you know, Charles Melton, Joe is, you know, admits to him like, well, I've, you know, I've never done that before. Like I've never, smoked yeah. anything like that and when you think about it, like when um, would he have you know when right, would he have done exactly that? when he was 13 he he was in this relationship and, and gracie has sort of micromanaged his life from that point on um he became a father when he was when he was that age so um there was really no time for him to i don't think that's quite true but yeah well i mean she she has his child when she's in prison so it wasn't long after this that he became a father um yeah, well, Honor's like nineteen. Yeah, I was trying to figure. I was trying to do the math on that because, like, Honor, their oldest child, is nineteen. Um, and he's what? I mean, the implication he's like thirty-five or thirty-six. Yeah. So, I think so yeah. So it would have been at least like when he was like sixteen or seventeen. I think. Well, I think that yeah, because I think that Natalie Portman's character is the same age that. Uh, that they have a conversation where Leanne she says Moore they're basically when it happened. And yeah. she was 36. And then I think she is the same age as Charles Melton is. So I think that makes yeah, him. I think that's right. Too. But yeah. Anyway, he was becoming a father far too, far too young. And yeah, in, in this scene, you know, again, there's, there's just sort of such a sadness in the scene to, you know, yeah. As you realized all of the life experience and the growing up that he never got to do, like, cause he, he's never grown up really. Like he, he never had, um that that phase of his life um and 
you know, that I think packs such an emotional punch and, you know, bring it back. You bring it back around at the end of the movie when he's watching his kids graduate from high school. And, you know, he's he is outside the the stadium. He's outside the place where they're having the the graduation. And he's just kind of standing there watching it and, you know, starts to to cry even a little bit. And again, there's there's just a lot in that. Like, you know, he's 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 a tragic figure for sure the fact that even just the fact that he's physically outside the the graduation i think speaks volumes um and you know that it's it is very clear what the real tragedy is in this movie and it's what has happened to him um as much as both of the other two characters are trying to sort of you know deflect from it obscure it you know find the gray area so to speak where you know, the fact of the matter is the the truth is is right there. And in the case of Natalie Portman's character, of course, that's, you know, sort of sexually manipulating him, right? Like, you know, she um she she seduces him in this apartment hotel wherever that she's staying. I think she's staying and, in the um, house. She's like staying in the yeah, house. Yeah. Anyway. And, you know, he Again, this is just part of his emotional being emotionally stunted. He he kind of thinks that it it means something more, uh, and that there's feelings there, there's emotions there, and you know Natalie Portman just kind of brushes him off and says, "This is just what grownups do." Which is you know, if if there's one line to sort of sum up what this movie is about, it, it might be that line right there. Um, this is what grownups do. Um, this is how they handle these these issues um, how, do, how do you mean like they just manipulate other people like what do you mean by that well yeah they 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 find the whatever they can to make themselves be able to go on with their lives again in the case of of julianne moore it's you know blowing everything else out of proportion to sort of justify well for her it's like oh we were in love that's that's yeah, the well yes that that too but and and then for you know for natalie portman it's justifying all of the things that she is doing in her sort of quest because at the end of the day she's finding the truth right and she's going to create something that does justice to the story does justice to the people she's going to you know create something bigger than herself right at least that's how she sees it and so everything else along the way including you know infiltrating really too deeply and intimately into these people's lives doing weird stuff like going into the pet pet shop storeroom and like mimicking exactly what happened and then you know again i'm mentioning here sort of seducing charles melton in the hopes of getting something there that she can use for her role and then just brushing him off. She's justifying all that saying, Oh, this is just what grownups do. Right. This is just, um, you know, th this, is this is, this is what we have to do in order to justify what we're doing. Um, and yeah. So Cause, it, Cause I felt like the, another relevant part of that conversation was when, and I think maybe what she was saying that more directly in response to was her saying that, at the end of the day, you have to prioritize like you are only responsible to yourself. And although those lines are not side by side to each other, it sounds like what she's saying is that like prioritizing yourself is what grownups do. Yeah. And 
yeah, I think there's, I mean, that is sort of the key to her psychology. I don't know if it's, I'm still wrapping my head around how much it applies to other people. I think to some extent, it certainly applies to Gracie and it explains a lot about the dynamic that, you know, we're both talking about here and why Joe's not really a grown up in the sense that Elizabeth is talking about in that scene. And the difference is, is that apparently being a grown up is, is not that you don't care about other people, but ultimately you care most about yourself, which is ironic because I think a lot of people, if you just said that to them plainly on the face would say that's actually, it's very childish, but it's certainly in practice. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not really how it plays out most of the time. Um, sure. Yeah. But I think Charles Melton is, is excellent. Like, you know, he, he really portrays that wounded figure with a lot of pathos and, you know, I, I, I felt deeply for him in these scenes that we're talking about. Uh, and I think it's, it's a very impressive performance again, for somebody whose credit is, who, whose chief credit to this point is Riverdale. Certainly I don't think anybody else on Riverdale has sort of given anything close to a performance with, with this type of nuance, but, um, all credit to him. I don't know if it's the the Oscar winning performance. Best supporting actor is actually a pretty tough category this year. Just you know, looking at the the candidates that are out there. Um, but um, but yes, um, he's he's excellent and he deserves to be talked about in that in that light. Scott, I want to skip ahead to the ending of the movie um, because I think there's maybe a little bit to talk about there. Um, but basically the way that the movie ends up is after the scene that you've alluded to with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore on the football field after the graduation, um, we get a look at the film that Natalie Portman is making. And um, she is dressed up in these very extravagant, like very extravagant dress. And um, it all looks very cheap uh is i think one thing that stands out but the dialogue in the uh scene is very cheesy she has like this snake it's it's this it's the pet store scene that we see right it's supposed to be like the scene where gracie seduces joe if you will mm -hmm. and basically what we see for lack of a better you know word is that the movie is bad right the movie that she is making is not a good movie um and in fact bears a lot of similarity to this crappy TV movie that we briefly see earlier in the movie uh, that I guess is, is another adaptation that has been made of this story. And, um, and it ends up being very similar. Like we see like the same scene in that TV movie and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference for the movie that Natalie Portman ends up making. Um, and then she asks to do another take of the scene because she says, I'm getting closer to something real. Um, what do you make of this, this scene, Scott? You know, I, I mentioned Tar because uh, of the, the fact that, you know, at the end of Tar, Lydia Tar ends up conducting the, you know, the video game uh, soundtrack, basically, whatever, the, the concert with the video game music um, mm -hmm. for all of the costumed folks. And then, you know, this movie ends up with all of this talk about, oh, you know, 
high art and we're going to make this independent film right and i'm a serious actress and i you know am here to get this story right right to do justice to this story and what we end up is end up with is this sort of ridiculous camp sequence of her with a snake around her shoulders seducing joe uh, in a way that is probably almost certainly very very different from how the the real interaction went went down what do you make of this note that the movie chooses to end on? I think it really makes you question, especially with the final line of her saying, oh, it's starting to get real. It's starting to get more real when she's talking about, like, you know, she's falling. She feels like she's starting to tap into to whatever she thinks she discovered during her time in Savannah. I think the film is really trying to circle back around and and talk about and, and again, sort of leave you to think on the psychology of what Elizabeth was doing itself. And that make it makes, of course, it, of course, it makes you question what truth she really was mining out of her time in Savannah. Or was she just another sort of flavor of wrecking ball to come through and dredge up old trauma and right. make people question you know, their relationships and their families and their lives and or just make them relive trauma? And it certainly doesn't cast a favorable light, probably. And I guess I'm still part of me is still trying to piece together what exactly I make of that scene, because I think that is sort of one of the one of the thinkers of the movie. So I'm curious if you have something more developed and flavored than my initial reaction of just sort of it's sort of the as much as the fight between Joe and Gracie is sort of the climax of Gracie's character. Uh, yeah, and maybe you get the sort of like, you know, the coda of her saying she's so, uh, she's so, what, what was the word she used? Oh, she's so secure at the, at the graduation. It feels like this is sort of the climactic scene or the coda for, Elizabeth, you know, she had the scene of like overly dramatized performing of of the letter in the mirror, which maybe tells you is the climactic scene for her character arc and then this at the end. But I'm curious if you're if you make more of it than than I have so far. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely something that I'm still mulling over as well. You know, I think one element that we haven't necessarily talked about is I think or, you know, we've sort of skirted around it, but the the role of sort of tabloids and the media and maybe social media and everything and sensationalizing stories like this. Um, and I think, you know, again, what we see in this final scene is that she, she's, you know, blustered all of this about, Oh, I want to get the truth. Like I want to, I want to do justice to the story and whatnot, but that doesn't really turn out to be the case, right? At the end of the day, they're trying to make entertainment, right? And so they go with this ridiculous, campy interpretation of what happened that is actually probably far from the truth. Um, and so I think he's satirizing actors, method acting, you know, the ways that we tell mm -hmm. these true stories. I mean, is he satirizing um, his own movie? He might be. Uh, you know, again, I think that's that's some of the the. Layers I mean, there's so much camp in around. this film. Yeah, 
Because I do, th but again, I think that comes back to maybe that a lot of this is how the characters see their own lives, right? Again, sure. they see they see everything that they're experiencing as this huge, you know, dramatic, shape shifting. I mean, how could you not think that with experience. the way the score sort of just right. booms in every other scene? But the the reality is no. The reality is you have enough hot dogs if you're Gracie. The reality is if you're Elizabeth. No, the movie that you're making. It's actually that it's not some world altering thing that is going to, you know, do you think that truth. do you think this trip is going to have made a difference in the movie you're making? That's the question that that honor asks her at dinner or, or somebody. Somebody asked her that question at some point. Yeah. And I think I think she thinks so. But the final scene would would posit the answer is no. Right. Because they end up making basically the same movie that was already made in this TV movie. Um and although she insists she's getting closer to something real, like. Yeah, the movie itself like... is no different than any of the tabloids that yeah. misrepresented what what had happened. Yeah, so I think it's kind of a, a, a savage punchline at the end of this movie, in the same way that the, that scene in Tar is kind of a savage punchline, too. Um, but the fact that all of this, you know. Dredging up everything breaking the relationship between Joe and Gracie, which, you know, may not be a bad thing, but, um, you know, that, that is something that happens. And, you know, all, all of this talk about, we're going to do justice to the story. It was all for naught, right. It, it, it's just kind of a funny little plot twist at the end of the movie, but that I think packs packs a wallop, um, for the reasons that we're talking about. And yeah, it, it really it really puts on trial anyone who would dare make a biopic, a historical sort of drama and everything going forward, especially one that deals with sort of controversial subject matter like this, right? Like, what is the value in what you're doing? Um, and it's a bold stance for Todd Haynes to take but i don't know that he necessarily is saying that he has all the answers right i think um he he is he is trying to poke some holes in you know again the art of acting and the the ethics of method acting and stuff like that but i, I certainly don't think he's trying to offer um a black and white i kind of feel like it's way too broad to say he's trying to poke holes in method acting I and mean, clearly he's making fun of like what natalie portman's character is doing but that that feels like maybe a little bit of a stretch to say he's he's making fun of method acting. Maybe. Uh, I mean, it's just hard not for me to not take that away when you see, you know, again, the ridiculous absurdity of her going as far as to go into the pet store stock room and mimic the sexual interaction that the two characters had. Mm -hmm. Like, it's hard. Maybe it's not what he was going for, but it's hard for me to not think about like, you know, all the crazy stuff we've done or heard about like, oh, Jared Leto, you know, he heated up ice cream and just pounded, a, you know, a, a gallon of ice cream every day and gave himself gout to play Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever. Like, you know, just the, the crazy st stories that we've heard about people method acting. Um, maybe that's not exactly what he's going for, but it is something that I think about. Um, and which I think Natalie Portman could certainly, her character could certainly be accused of here, but anything else you want to talk about, Scott? I mean, again, I think we could have uh, an even longer conversation about what's going on in this movie, but, um, for a first watch, we've probably sort of picked out 
the highlights and you know the maybe the the interpretations that are circling around in in our heads sorry just to finish this conversation though because like isn't natalie portman like a noted method act like it'd just be really weird if if he were making fun of the lead actress in his movie maybe it would but again I, i'm not i'm not ruling that out like there's a lot of metatextual stuff to what he is doing here right like he is somebody who has directed movies with these big actresses like this right like he's worked with kate blanchett as well like in a movie like carol um, you know, who is somebody else who I think you would put in this camp of, I don't know if she's necessarily a method actor, but who just fully embodies the characters that she is playing, like, to a point where it's just like, you you blur the lines between the person and the actress, right? I, I don't know if he's making fun of it necessarily. I mean, maybe he is. Again, the, the pet store scene is just very silly it's hard not to see it as i mean it's played for, it's silly. certainly played for laughs and yeah. it's, it's played for its absurdity i'm just saying like i don't know if he's like skewering method acting i think he i think she he's making fun of this person who's taking this particular character study so seriously and the absurdity of it when and then when you see sure. the final product like going back to the points you're making then when you see the final product like you know, what was this you know what was it all for right. is like kind of the, it's kind of the question okay yeah i mean yeah maybe he is not skewering it as a concept but um i think he is skewering certain cer certain iterations of method acting again i i would put what natalie portman you know does in this movie her character does on the same level as like you know what i was talking about like the the famous jared leto story of him like pounding microwaved ice cream and giving himself gout right like what are you doing here man for a movie that nobody even remembers exists um sure so you know i i do think i do think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle right like he's not necessarily taking down method acting as a whole but i don't know that this is necessarily just a story about this one character in this one context like i think there are examples of people that we have seen crossing the line in this way, perhaps um, with the links that they have gone to. Um, I think it's, I, I think I'm, it's more just how how it relates to like what you're doing it for, right? Yes. Like that's like when when you're trying to recreate this like extremely traumatizing and problematic person in a specific time in their life, and you're sort of method acting into like what you imagine a sex scene was like between a 13 and a 36 year old it's like the notion of that not only does it seem silly in isolation but it seems maybe problematic in and of itself and i think i think you know everything's in in different degrees right it's, but it, it seems like that is that is what he's trying it, it's like he's he's using that part and parcel with like the dissection of people's lives in the way that this film is going about it not necessarily true crime because that's like a different thing but this notion yeah. of you know trying to create historical lives. dramas about people by doing weird stuff and like i don't know what is what does todd haynes think about napoleon you know what does he think about lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, you know. Um, oh, it seems a bit different. That doesn't quite seem to hit the register of what we're talking about here, but I don't it, think Lincoln satirizes uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yes, that's that's true. I, I, I see where you're going with that. But yes, maybe it, it is just playing into this idea that 
people have a lurid fascination with these types of stories and yeah the movie's no, no different than the tabloid sensationalized yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and that's why i think like the noir stuff again so the almost procedural element to the first part of the movie where natalie portman is like going around interviewing all these people she interviews the ex-husband she goes and talks to georgie she that, talks to see all that's not people. weird at all to me like that all makes a ton of sense it's like what she starts to do later in the film that becomes weirder right but the way that it's played sort of as this like you know, we're trying to get to the bottom of some mystery here or whatnot. Like, I think speaks yeah. to who Gracie, the what? way that we frame the yeah. way that we frame these stories in movies and whatever, like we, we framed like them with so much intrigue, right? Like we almost um, mm -hmm. bastardize them and, and turn them into this sort of, you know, pot boiler, if you will. Um, when the reality is these are, these are people's lives, right? Like that. This is this is a, a story that um, where where there's there's a pretty black and white ending to it, I think. And when you, when you turn it into this this sort of again mystery about oh well, what really happened here? The the person like Joe, the victim, gets lost in the middle of all of this. Yeah, I honestly don't think I have the same read of that stuff earlier on. It almost feels like a development of like the pitch of what she's doing. I mean, like the, the notion of like interviewing the people who are closest to the I mean, it, it kind of feels like journalism, right? Ultimately, like what she's like this act. If you really believe she's like giving it her honest best in trying to mine some truth out of this character study. Interviewing like the like the people who are closest to her at the time does make a lot of sense. Like people do research on the people they're playing. Like it'd be weird if Joaquin Phoenix didn't research Napoleon Bonaparte before he played the role. Just like as an example, like that that notionally to me isn't problematic. Um, and I don't and I don't I don't see it as this sort of like you're bastardizing these people's like experiences by asking them about what this person was like when in this like very critical point in time. It's then yeah. like what you then start to do with it and how that escalates over time that becomes yeah. sort of this not. I mean, satire may be too strong of a word, but what becomes like, you know, the the more problematic portrait that you're painting. I don't think that it's wrong for the actress necessarily to be doing this. I think the way that the scenes are styled, it's like, should we as the audience be investigating further into, you know, these people's lives, right? Or do we need, do we need to just be letting them be, right? Like, I, I think that's more of the way that I see it. I, I don't I don't necessarily see as her research being the thing that is bastardizing it, but presenting these stories in such a way that, oh, it's like a mystery that we're trying to get to the bottom of, I, I do think cheapens the, the, you know, reality of what these people's lives are and what they've actually experienced. Um, gotcha. And so yeah, I, I, I guess think, I just don't see it as like a, a mystery like, it's framed as a mystery like like you do. I, I didn't get that read of it personally when I was watching it. Yeah, I just think for me, it's like, you know, again, going around the interviewing the people and the music and all these sort of like, oh, Georgie pops up and he's like, well, maybe, you know, she was sexually abused, right? Maybe, or well, not maybe. He's like, this is, he's this, is, she what, was. This is yeah. why Gracie d did what she did, right? Because she was sexually abused. 
but that's just something that just kind of gets left there right like she just she she denies it gracie denies it right she's yeah. like that's you know that's ridiculous or whatever it's something that just kind of gets left there and again it's like this idea of well we're probing deeper and deeper into this and we're bringing out all of these painful experiences like maybe she actually was right but does that make it right for us to try and like dig and dig and dig and say oh well maybe you know this was the reason for what happened like what 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 does that accomplish in the end but i think that's i think that's weird to put on the movie though because because georgie offers that unsolicited to great like to elizabeth as a in the film right like she's just sitting there waiting to get picked up by joe and he walks out and says here's my theory on why she's crazy and it's because she was sexually abused yeah, by her older she's got a theory you know again that's that's kind of maybe goes back a little bit to what i'm saying is like right but you're talking about one scene at the end of the movie where she's not investigating anymore that's just what i'm saying it's like I think what you're, I mean, and maybe, maybe this is me just mis misinterpreting, but like the film is certainly can't like, again, I agree that it's like hamming it up at the, with the music and all these things, trying to create this sort of mystery thriller element to it. But like, there's a mystery thriller element to the work that Natalie Portman is doing because she is trying to find this truth, right? Like the, the mystery she's trying to solve is the truth of the character. But yeah. it also feels weird to me that like, I don't feel like in terms of probing like the way that she probes people, especially in the first half of the movie that we were mostly talking about there for a while. Like that doesn't feel inherently problematic to me. Like she's asking if she can ask them some questions. They can say no. Right. Like it, it's not like she's rolling up to their house, knocking on the door and like harassing them with questions. I, I think that the way it evolves and the way she starts to, to like manipulate that information, like the stuff that of course, the stuff that she does with the letter that again, she's given unsolicited, right? Like Joe gives her the letter. She didn't ask for like any letters that they wrote between each other earlier on in the film. It There is some element of like her mere presence. And this sort of maybe goes back to something that we were both talking about earlier as well. Like her mere presence is instigating all this conflict that would certainly probably would not be happening if she were not there. It's almost like she like she solved a mystery that wasn't even really the mystery she was trying to solve. I don't know. Like I'm still working through it and piecing through it. I, like the film is is framing what's happening in the narrative like it's some sort of mystery, but I don't feel like that's really what's happening if you if you just like look at what's happening on the page, so to speak. And maybe that's where I'm like bumping like bumping up against trying to make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that I would be refined with the rewatch yeah. that we're talking about. That's here. yeah, that's, that's totally fair. That's ultimately where we where we are, are arriving at. I think because Haynes is like obviously manipulating what's happening on the screen with all of these sort of production elements, right? Like whether it's the score, whether it's like the camera zooms and the editing, like he's doing a lot of stuff to try to artificially create this tension or this mystery that we're talking about and yeah. what's happening. But like, is that what's actually happening? Like it doesn't really feel that way to me and that's where that's sort of the conflict that i'm that i need to dissect on that on that rewatch that we keep talking about that maybe i've accepted now so there's a lot to toss over and that's why i like the movie so much i think because i there are I mean, good questions it's that it's maybe it's bad scott maybe it's just not doing a good <laughs> enough job making it clear what it's doing i'm just, I'm just kidding <laughs> i mean maybe it is maybe it is but i think again the fact that there's a lot of interesting questions that it's asking and they're questions like that i want to keep thinking about right like it's not just like throwing things out there and i'm just like okay well i don't mm -hmm. really care enough to actually try and get to the bottom of this i don't feel that way
like sure. uh, talk sitting here talking about rewatching the movie and i do want to do that so sure all right scott your favorite scene or moment for may december oh man i hate doing this when i'm so fresh off of off of a movie but it i think it kind of has to be the the fight scene between charles melton and julianne moore and he you know he's coming home from getting his own cage rattled something that phrase i keep coming back to in this for some reason by natalie portman who's told him that basically insinuated that he's a kid like he's not a grown-up and that has led him to question everything that's happened in his life that's prevented him from being a grown-up and he comes home and tries to have this conversation with with gracie with julianne moore and gets shot down in the, in the way that you can only imagine has happened any time a conversation has bridged close to these topics over the last 23 whatever years it's been that they've been together. And the fact that sort of just perfectly encapsulates their relationship and his, you know, physical and emotional location in space really is a powerful scene. It really works. You know, it's, it's kind of weird to me that, I mean, I kind of get it, but it's also like kind of sucks. I think that that scene's sort of been memed. I think because I feel like the that that scene where he's just like I was 13 or whatever, like that gets passed around on Twitter or whatever, making whatever is like something stupid's happening. And it like kind of sucks. Like in my mind, that kind of sucks because I think that's like such a powerful moment yeah. in the movie where he, she's like straight gaslight. Like, I mean, oftentimes people throw around the word gaslight a lot. I feel like for things that may or may not be gaslighting. But this is like this is it, guys. This this is gaslighting. Uh, happening over and it's clear that that's been happening for decades in their relationship. And I find, I found that to be a very effective scene. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, there are so many scenes that are standouts to me in this movie. I'm just going to go with the monologue. I think we've had talks in the last year or so about great monologues and movies. And I think the one that Natalie Portman here instant has instantly joins the pantheon, like the, things that she's doing to like sort of again imitate julianne Moore, just showing how deeply she has slid into this character it's kind of chilling to watch honestly um the way that she plays it and i found it just absolutely mesmerizing and just some some sublime acting from natalie portman just trying to study everything that's going on in her face i think is is fascinating experiment but scott your score for may december out of 10 I give it eight monarch butterflies out of 10. I give it 9.5. This is definitely one of my favorite movies of the year, and it could even go up uh, as I rewatch it. So I look forward to doing that. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of May, December. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have the results from the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. And we're going to be talking over those and what they mean for awards season ahead. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. back to this episode of some like it scott scott as teased before the break uh the new york film critics circle uh released the results of their annual awards 
um, at, you know, one of the early, again, uh, early bodies that votes in award season. And so things are still, you know, really, really raw as far as the word season is concerned, but still interesting to look at these critic circles and, and see what's winning and, you know, whether there are any trends that are beginning to emerge. Um, as far as the New York Film Critic Circle is concerned, uh, starting with Best Supporting Actor, Scott, since it pertains to the movie that we just talked about, Charles Melton was the winner of the, of the New York Film Critic Circle um, Award for Best Supporting Actor for May, December. You know, I, I think that I don't know that I would say he's a front runner or anything for the, the Academy Award, but um, it does seem like he is going to continue to be in the conversation and has a, has a very good chance at a nomination. Um, I would say for this performance at this moment in time, we, we know how quickly things can change, but um, that's, I'm not, I'm not saying he won't eventually be a front runner, especially if this momentum continues to build, but I don't believe that when it comes to the Oscars, he would be considered a front runner at this point. I think that, you know, I was like, I was looking at predictions earlier today. There's still like a lot of chief critics who don't even have him getting nominated. So like, you know, on gold derby, I was just scrolling through this category earlier today because I figured it would come up since Melton's won a couple of these awards. And I was interested to see that it, it, they don't really even have him on their list. I don't necessarily think I agree with that, but I think that speaks to the fact that he's not quite there yet. Like he won a Gotham in a New York film critic circle. Like it's not like he's winning a Golden Globe yeah. or a SAG award. And I'm not saying he won't. Like he could get there. He could absolutely get there for sure. But not there yet. It certainly is interesting that he is taking home these two awards though. That said, one, you're talking about one of the trends, and I'm, maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but the fact that May-December won both this Best Supporting Actor category as well as the Best Screenplay for Sammy Birch, does, I think it's important to remember that this, along with another a couple other movies that we're going to talk about, are very New York films. Todd Haynes, although not a New Yorker, is very much loved in New York City. And his last film was The Velvet Underground, which is a film about the underground music scene in what, like the 70s? Scott, you'd know this better than me. What period? Did that film cover the Velvet Underground? Yeah, the 70s. Yeah, the 70s underground music scene in New York City. So he's very much uh, has his finger on the pulse of New York City. And I think that he's well regarded by New York film critics. I mean, Carol is a very, you know, is a very is a very notable New York period film. And so. Sort of like Martin Scorsese's, like sort of like a celebrated New Yorker at heart, regardless of whether he is or isn't one himself. I think that. Todd Haynes is sort of opera, he sort of exists in that category also. So that's not to discount the awards that both of those films won on Friday last week, just providing context for when you think trying to generalize some of those some of those takeaways for yes. the broader race. Yeah. And of course, Netflix, this being a Netflix film too, Netflix has not had a great, great track record with uh, the Oscars, although I guess uh you know, Marriage Story, a Netflix film, did win a, a supporting acting Oscar. Um, if I'm yeah. Thinking off the top of my head. So still a possibility. It's got The Boy and the Heron won for Best Animated Feature. Um, of course, you know, you always have to, to look with some skepticism at the idea of a foreign language film winning this category. Hayao Miyazaki has only won the Best Animated Feature one time for Spirited Away, you know, over 20 years ago at this point. Um, despite making a lot of excellent films. 
However, you know, you look at the crop of animated films this year, and I do think that The Boy and the Heron has a great shot to to win this um, to win this award at the Oscars. Pixar did not put out one of their stronger efforts. They put out Elemental, which I mean, we both enjoyed, but I think is generally considered to be mid to lower tier Pixar. You have Disney's Wish that just came out, uh, which doesn't really seem to be getting great um, reception necessarily, just kind of, again, sort of middling, a little bit forgettable perhaps. Um, and so sort of the, the major animation output outputs of the year seem like they have come up a little bit short. And I think especially with the narrative of Miyazaki returning and maybe it's his farewell film again, um, I think he has a lot of juice going into the Oscars. Thank you. Yeah. I think you're forgetting across the Spider-Verse, but we can leave it at that. That it? Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I, I figured there was something I was probably forgetting in there, of course, into the Spider-Verse did, did win, but that's probably the biggest competition. But. Yeah. Scott, supporting actress, uh, that award went to someone who I do think will definitely be in the Academy Award winning race in a film that uh, is going to be in the Academy Awards race, The Holdovers, and that is Divine Joy Randolph winning for her performance. I was really happy to see this win, Scott. I thought she was excellent in that film, maybe the best performance in that movie. Um, and I think The Holdovers is going to be doing quite well in awards season, if I had to guess. Yeah, Divine Joy Randolph, you talk about someone who probably is the favorite to win Best Supporting Actress right now. Obviously, plenty of months still to go, lots of time still to elapse there and, and for the race to change because I believe Danielle Brooks in The Color Purple, which obviously has not come out yet. That's a Christmas release. I think she's also highly touted as being a, a top competitor for that, for the Best Supporting Actress category for her performance. So we'll see how the race continues to develop over but i think divine joy randolph certainly in pole position right now if if i had to guess yes i i would agree with that i believe as things stand um best international film scott that went to anatomy of a fall obviously from france justine triette's film um i think it has you know a good chance to win this award i, I it was francis submission submission yes for the oscars no the taste of things is francis submission Oh, that's right. It okay. has no so chance guess, to win this award at the Oscars. It has no chance to win. <laughs> However, it does yeah, still yeah. have a chance to get nominated for Best Picture, which I think is a possibility, perhaps. Um, it could. It certainly could still get nominated, but it will not be nominated in the international feature category. France really be wild in with the international film category, of course. Submitting Titan, still one of the wildest. You movies. say they're wild in, man, but I think Taste of Things is better than this movie. That, so. that, that is true. That That is yeah, fair, yeah. and it very well may be. Uh -huh. Again, correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't seen Taste of Things. I feel like Anatomy of a Fall is maybe the more like gonna would play better to the Oscar voters, but I could be wrong about that. I don't. Yeah, I have a hard time answering that question because I don't really know what plays well to Oscar voters. I mean, that's like a a high drama, like a traditional like Oscar baby drama uh, or like romantic romantic drama. So I don't know. I could see the taste of things playing better. It's like maybe more quote unquote boring, if you will, because it's certainly a, a slower piece. But I mean, romantic dramas play well to Oscar voters. I think. I think. I don't know. And yeah, Juliette, Juliette, Juliette Binoche is a very celebrated winner, actress. So, yeah. yeah, she has won an Academy Award. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Moving on, Scott, to something else that doesn't feel like it's a it's a predictor at all for the Academy Awards. Franz Rogowski. Uh, oh, you I don't think he's you don't think he's pole position ahead of 
Cillian Murphy, Leonardo DiCaprio, Bradley Cooper, Paul Giamatti. <laughs> you know, strangely enough, I don't feel that. Uh, for but but Franz Rogowski winning um, for the film Passages, um, of course, the Irish Sax directed film. Um, that's, which, some new, that's some New York spin right there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think this is one of those examples of the critics being like, well, this performance is not going to get any love in actual award season. And so we want to, you know, while we have a say in things, we want to sort of give our vote to Franz Rogowski, who stars along been, alongside Ben Wishaw in that movie, which I have not yet seen, Scott, but um, I, I do hear great things about it. It's certainly a critical darling. Um, and you know, was talked about a lot coming out of Sundance this year, I believe. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, look, it's uh, it, it got all the horny New York film critics going, I guess. Of which there are probably many. Um, sure. On the flip side, Scott, Best Actress went to Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon. Again, one of these that is going to be right in the heart of the Academy race, you would think. Killers of the Flower Moon, a movie that I'd be shocked if it doesn't, you know, get nominated for quite a few categories, including Best Picture. Um, I think, you know, it, it has all of the elements that you would expect from an Oscar movie. And Lily Gladstone's performance is being talked about the most of any performance in the movie, even more than Leonardo DiCaprio um, or Robert De Niro, you would have to say. And so um, I think she's going to be right there in in the heart of the, the Oscar race. And... Um, this may be one of those where the crossover between the critics and the, the Academy is, is right in line. Yeah, it does. It does. It feels like she's, I mean, un, undoubtedly she is in the conversation for this, but this is another category that feels particularly vicious this year. I mean, there was a point where it felt like Emma stone was the favorite in this category. Poor things is releasing wide this weekend. So we'll see what the, wider audience responses to see if buzz can continue to grow for that particular performance. But then there's the likes of Carrie Mulligan and um, Sandra Holler. We were just talking about anatomy of fall. I think maybe anatomy of falls best chance to get nominated might actually be in best actress. Uh, it's hard. It's maybe hard to say. Maybe it has a good chance of best picture as well. I, I think it's, it has a decent chance in both categories, but it's a strong category. Lily Gladstone <laughs> certainly gives a powerful performance in the movie. I think the question is whether killers of the flower moon can stay has like, whether it has staying power, right? Especially as like an Apple film where it sort of already had its theatrical moment and the film still needs to come out on Apple TV plus. But I wonder, even though Apple has been relatively successful with the likes of Coda at the very least, it hasn't really done that. It honestly hasn't done as well as Netflix has in dominating categories further down the list. I mean, I know Netflix has struggled to win many times, but the fact that Netflix, frankly, has been very prolific at getting nominations at the very least and being in the conversation, it's more the finishing power that's been the issue. Whereas on the other hand, like you you talk about their Apple's like other notable films, granted from not as significant filmmakers as Martin Scorsese, since he is of the top, top echelon. But yeah. when you think about something like the tragedy of Macbeth a couple of years ago, that, I mean, that struggled like that, that film ultimately struggled in, in the awards conversation. I mean, maybe there's a variety of reasons for that, but I wonder if sort of like the, you know, sort of like the Irishman, but maybe a little bit differently, like 
the Irishman got a bunch of nominations, didn't win a single award at the Academy Awards, Martin Scorsese's last film. You kind of wonder if it's maybe a similar story here where maybe it squeaks a couple nominations in mostly acting categories, even though maybe something like production design, given the period nature of the film or screenplay or director make a lot of sense too. And it, it just sort of fails to have the finishing power of similar streaming movies. I sort of worry about that for Lily Gladstone, especially in a year where when you talk about like long-term narratives, like is something like killers of the flower moon able to overcome one of its main competitors, which I would use like Oppenheimer. We talk about like historical, historical narratives about, you know, with, with huge acting performances. You know, you have Cillian Murphy, you have Robert Downey Jr. You have, um, yeah, Emily Blunt, as well as a host of other people in that movie. It kind of feels like it's going to have to beat that competition to, to have it. And I think Lily Gladstone probably does beat granted. She's not in the same category as Emily Blunt. So it's not really like apples to apples, but it's like that. It almost feels like those two movies have to sort of compete with each other more directly yeah. in a lot of ways. And I mean, if you look where I was going next uh, to the, the big two categories here at this, uh, this, the film critic circle awards, you see the split, right? Christopher sure. Nolan takes best director for Oppenheimer, but best picture goes to killers of the flower moon. Um, so, you know, I don't think those two movies are necessarily the only movies in the race for the best picture at, uh, at the Oscars at this point. I think, um, the holdovers is definitely in there as well. Um, and you know, a couple others probably swirling around the conversation too, but am I crazy? I, do, I don't really feel like killers of the flower moon is really near the top of that conversation. Am I, well, am yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that? that, I think that the holdovers in Oppenheimer are probably, pulling higher at this moment in time. Yeah. And then I would put Killers of the Flower Moon in the the next tier sort of. But I do yeah. think you're right that there could be this sort of battle between the historical dramas, right? Because you have Killers of the Flower Moon and Oppenheimer, two historical dramas from, you know, the biggest filmmakers you could possibly imagine, right? Are people going to lump them together? Are people going to say, "Oh, well, of these two movies, I thought that this one was better and therefore I'm going to rate this one really high and this other one really low. Um, it's hard to know what goes on in Oscar voters minds. If anything goes on in their minds, I do wonder sometimes, but, um, but I do, I do wonder if we will see that sort of tension playing out um, over the course of award season. And maybe it ends up like we see here, right? Like maybe they, they vote to sort of split the vote, if you will. Maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, Oppenheimer gets best director, perhaps Nolan, you know, finally getting his flowers from the Academy that he's never really gotten before. And then Scorsese takes best picture. Maybe something else sneaks in there. I don't know, but it's certainly something to watch going forward because, um, yeah, they are two of the heavy hitters from the year. And at least on paper, they are sort of similar films. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see just going just kind of repeating myself here with poor things coming out this weekend. That's sort of the one film that I feel like we're not talking about in this best sure. in this best picture conversation, because this the sort of reaction this film got at Venice, it won the Golden Lion and the reaction was so positive, even though I didn't have that reaction when I saw the movie. I mean, I think the film is really well made, but I wonder if if there will be like, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos Redemption for the favorite not being as, you know, not not winning really that many awards in the grand scheme of things. 
that year. And, you know, whether it should have won over Green Book isn't necessarily a conversation I'm interested in having, but it certainly was a part of the conversation that year. And it didn't play out that way. But yeah, poor things, I think, is one. I think. I, I guess just on poor things, since sure. you've seen it, Scott, uh, my only thought about that movie is it's weird. Is it too out there? Yeah. I mean, I w- yeah, I mean, it certainly is out there, but it seems like people dig Yorgos Lanthimos. I mean, sure. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's been six years or five years since the favorite. I don't know if that if the Academy has has swayed more in that favor or less. But I mean, the film's themes are like very. I don't want to say basic, right, but like it's not like it's some like complex drama you need to unpack, right? Like you're going to watch the film. You're going to understand what the film is trying to say. And it's really funny and it's a good time. And again, that those, those things did not combine to make a five-star movie for me, but I certainly enjoyed the movie while I was watching it. So I think that's something. I don't know if it quite gets over the line. I think the other one would be American fiction. I don't really think that film is a front runner at this point. Not certainly not of the ilk of like a poor things or, Oppenheimer or even killers, but it won the TIFF audience award and I saw it this past weekend and it's a very funny movie and it would be absolutely hilarious if it were to win best picture. I'll say that much. I'm looking forward to seeing that one, Scott, um, as well. And yeah, it, it might be right there in the conversation, uh, too, but definitely killers of the flower moon Oppenheimer. Those are known commodities at this point. Cause they've been out for, for some time now, especially in the case of Oppenheimer. So sure. Um, Do you think the paramount pictures, Twitter account is going to single handedly land, like basically rupture the killers of the flower moon campaign with the, with the, with the tweet that they had in response to the, to the Robert De Niro uh, tweet. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure if I he saw just had that. to. It's like somebody QRT. Oh yeah, he replying. had to do it. He to just, him or something. you know, yeah. he had to do it to him, and <laughs> that's on the same level as as what we're talking about with Netflix posting thirst traps of Charles Melton. Oh, yeah. that's way worse. That's way worse. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's traps. pretty bad. But... You know, he had to do it to him. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? That was crazy, dude. But yeah, crazy. but I mean, again, the fact that the Charles Melton stuff, it's like we're going to sexualize him when oh sure when that's he, yeah. the whole reason that he's you know the way he is in this movie yeah, anyway yeah, yeah. i don't think we have to compare the two no things, no what, but, what i was saying uh, too i didn't i didn't mean to compare either I was, it's just like i was more just like i can't believe that got tweeted like it's yeah. unbelievable that that got tweeted <laughs> he had to do it <laughs> you know that's you know he had to that's do good, it to that's him. one for the ages for sure um, it's definitely going to be appear on those like you know those tweet li- like when someone's like best best tweets of all time and yeah. you start scrolling through the qrts and you're gonna see that one for sure it feels like a drill tweet honestly it does <laughs> yeah all right scott well on that note i think that will just about do it for this episode of some like it scott where can our listeners find you on social media at shelton 2013 and I'm at Scarvey Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. However, even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, like, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will we will be reviewing the 12th film from director Hayao Miyazaki, The Boy and the Heron. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey.
see you down the road.